Ontology, the Waystation of Red-Pilled Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Ginny, Arya and Guy All Bots The Reshaping of the World Order After the First World War Part 5 there is now an afterthought that the nationalist government was regarded as the direct heir of the Beiyang government and considered a core part of China's reconstruction and prosperity, but this argument is totally indefensible. Modern history is different from other eras. Literature evidence on modern history is extremely rich. Even after the Communist Party had covered up and destroyed a lot of them, the plentiful materials left by the Soviet Union and Japan are sufficient to fully explain the situation. Since the nationalist government was established in 1928, it could not be an organization to rebuild China in a dual sense. First, it was born out of opposition to the Beiyang government and the revolution of 1911. What was the national revolution for? the overthrow of foreign powers and the elimination of the unequal treaties. What was an unequal treaty? These were the various treaties expressly recognized by the Revolution of 1911 and the Republic of China. The premises for the Revolution of 1911 and the Republic of China were to implement European-style parliamentary politics domestically, respect the international system internationally, and maintain international coordination among the great powers. These were the basic conditions for the very existence and development of the Republic of China. These prerequisites have been described by the Nationalist Party's National Humiliation Awareness Campaign and our revolutionary ideological education as unequal treaties. In fact, they were not. France after the Napoleonic Wars, Germany after the First World War, and Japan after the Meiji Restoration all accepted such treaties when they first joined or restored the international system. After a period of time, the treaties could be gradually revised to become more favorable to China. But if you use revolutionary means to destroy these treaties, you would find yourself in an awkward position. It was as good as to declare that I am no longer subject to the law enforced by the police and that I would grab everything in the conference room as my own. This is okay until another robber comes to rob me. Then if I report to the police, will the police take up my case? The police will definitely say you have already declared that you are not protected by us, you had looted us, now another robber came to rob you, it is a dogfight among the outlaws. You don't need to expect us to protect you. After the Manchurian incident, Chiang Kai-shek ended up in this pitiable situation. Although he tried to convince the whole world that Japan had invaded him. But the problem was that he had adopted revolutionary diplomacy, unilaterally abolished treaties, taken back concessions, expelled British and American missionaries and confiscated their properties. You had already broken the rules. How could you expect the international community to punish others to avenge you? A good citizen can ask for the protection of the police because he abides by the law. You have already gone beyond the scope of legal protection, so you can only be on your own strength. Look at what happens in Syria. The Assad government is treated differently than the Iraqi government. When the Islamic State strikes the Iraqi government, 
the United States will send troops to intervene to help the Iraqi government, although the Islamic State also attacks the Syrian Assad government and the Americans stand by and let the Assad government fend for itself. Why? Because Assad is also an enemy of the United States, it is not protected by the international system while the Iraqi government is an ally of the United States. The United States will protect its allies but not its enemies. The nationalist government was in the same position as the Assad government. It was a sabotager of the treaty system. Therefore it was not entitled to international protection. Not only after the Manchurian incident, but even after the July 7 incident, the nationalist government sought help everywhere. The British diplomats estimated that the July 7 incident was only a coincidence. When the July 7 incident took place, none of the high-ranking Japanese generals who commanded the North China garrison was present. If the Japanese really wanted to start a war, its generals must have been in their respective positions. It is inconceivable to start a war without the high-ranking generals present. In addition, the Japanese did not even have real ammunition during the drill, and they used blank ammunition, which proved that the Japanese were indeed only exercising. The Northwest Army stationed in North China had been the main target of Soviet penetration since the Feng Yuxiang era, who received more funding than the Communist Party itself. The Communist underground organizations in North China were under the control of Zhou Enlai and Liu Shaoqi, and the intelligence work of the Northwest Army was supervised by Zhang Kishia, an underground member of the CCP, and an important general of the Northwest Army. Although the identities of the attackers on the Japanese soldiers have never been established, the Japanese always believed that they were sent by Zhang Kishia, Zhou Enlai, and Liu Shaoqi in order to provoke the Sino-Japanese War. Of course there is no way to prove this point. But if you propose that this incident was a conspiracy by the Japanese as an excuse to invade China, all the evidence points out that the Japanese did not have such a scheme. The Japanese acted simply out of consideration of their honor, that is, the reputed Japanese Imperial Army had been attacked by such a weaker army, if we did not retaliate against you severely, it will damage the repute of the Imperial Army's military might. Then the Japanese retaliated frantically, so much so that they transgressed international laws, killed civilians, and committed various war crimes. Because of these war crimes, the international community condemned Japan. Then the Chinese took advantage of the situation and blamed all the illegitimate activities and their consequences on the Japanese. But if you really want to investigate this dispute, the story was really like this, the Chinese had a fight with the Japanese. At first, both sides used illegitimate methods. Later, China lost. Japan still refused to desist and went too far. At this time, the police intervened and arrested Japan, who had gone too far and sent it to prison, but this does not mean that Japan initiated the whole thing. The relation between China and Japan is akin to that between Arab and Israel. Japan almost always won every time in its conflict with China, but despite that, China always failed to abide by the signed treaties and always resorted to terrorist tactics or other illegitimate means to retaliate, forcing the Japanese to retaliate in return. But Japan was different from Israel in that it didn't exercise appropriate restraint.
Once starting retaliation, it could not stop in time, which led to the Sino-Japanese War. And among these provocative actions, as I just said, many were instigated by underground Communist Party organizations beyond the control of the nationalist government or masterminded by the Soviet Union. They didn't only try to attack Japan, but also planned to destroy the Nationalist Party along the way. Chiang Kai-shek was actually not ignorant of this situation, but due to his nationalism, he couldn't control the situation which led to the failure of all his efforts. Later, many members of the Nationalist Party reflected on this issue. People like Hu Xiu and Jiang Tingfu had come to a full understanding of this point. In hindsight, even in 1928 and the Golden Decade, the foundation of the Nationalist Government was very vulnerable. In the international community, it was a revolutionary regime similar to the Assad regime. On the one hand, it antagonized Western countries and engaged in anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism. On the other hand, it advocated Chinese nationalism and had to oppose the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of China, as well as the pro-Soviet warlords such as Feng Yuxiang and Xing Shitsai. How could one survive fighting against the powerful forces of imperialism and the Soviet Union at once? Fighting on the two fronts was doomed to defeat. Chiang Kai-shek relied on his $4 trillion at his best time, which was an extremely vulnerable position in the eyes of the Soviet Union and the Western world. If he simply relied on imperialism to suppress the agents of the Soviet Union as the Beiyang warlords and Zhang Zuolin did, he might have been able to succeed, if he had followed the Chinese Communist Party's approach, relied wholeheartedly on the Soviet Union to fight against imperialism, he might have also been able to succeed, instead he fought on two fronts, made enemies of both sides. From the very beginning his attempt was doomed to failure. As long as he followed the two-front combat strategy of defeating imperialism and destroying communism, no matter if his specific tactics were wise or correct, his overall striving on mainland China was doomed to failure. This is the view from the domestic angle of China. From the perspective of the international community, it was much simpler. From the 1920s through the 1930s to the 1940s, China, as a whole was abandoned by the international system, just like the Middle East now. To the imperialists, this land was too poor to be worth the huge investment required for its occupation. Yet to the Soviets, it was still a very precious territory that must be appropriated. Imperialism was not eager to keep it, while the Soviet Union was determined to get it, then the situation was in favor of the Soviet Union. In the Far East, the only foreign power that had a strong interest in China was Japan. Hence Japan attacked China. From the standpoint of view of Japan, its attacks on China had a dual purpose, first and foremost, especially in the Northeast, it was to hit the Soviet Union. Britain and the United States were not against this purpose. Not only did they not oppose it, but they were also in fact quite appreciative of it. You can tell by the diplomacy of Britain and the United States in the early years after the Manchurian incident and even the early years after the July 7th incident. The Soviet Union was the only power willing to support Chiang Kai-shek at that time. The Soviet Union supported Chiang Kai-shek in order to prolong the war and entangle China and Japan, which was most beneficial to the Soviet Union. 
The United Kingdom and the United States have adopted a policy of equal punishment to both sides, believing that both China and Japan were equally responsible for the war and lean towards neither. Until Japan's second purpose revealed that it attacked China ultimately to establish a parallel international system centered on Japan and to overthrow the rule of white imperialism in the world. Only then did Britain and the United States make an abrupt U turn to contain Japan. The trigger of this new policy was the invasion of Indochina. Chinese historians often do not understand this point. They seem to maintain that because Japan invaded China and was condemned by the international community, there would be war between the West and Japan sooner or later. In fact, it was not the case. The British and Americans had a bottom line. Indeed, Japan attacked China. If you committed crimes that violated human rights, Britain and the United States would condemn you or give China a series of humanitarian aid, but direct intervention was out of the question because what happened had no direct impact on them. Once Japan ventured into Southeast Asia and invaded French Indochina, setting foot in the sphere of influence of Europe and Western countries in the Far East, the United States would outright sanction it, this was their bottom line. The Sino Japanese War could still be tolerated. Invading Indochina and the Far Eastern colonies triggered blockade and sanction by the United States, under which all kinds of materials, especially the oil supply, were cut off. The Japanese had the choice either to wait and die or to risk everything and fight. Then occurred the attack on Pearl Harbor. The Pearl Harbor attack was caused by Japan's move from opposing the Soviet Union and China to challenging Britain and the United States. The logic behind it is crystal clear. If we look at the entire matter from Japan's standpoint, Japan had actually gone too far. If it had been satisfied with attacking China and the Soviet Union only, just as Israel now only hits the Arabs, it would not have been opposed by Britain and the United States. If it had withdrawn from mainland China at an appropriate time and used the Northeast as its base to firmly resist the Chinese communists and the subversive forces of the Soviet Union, it may even have been rewarded by Britain and America. It would have been even possible that after decades of persistence, when the Cold War broke out, Japan would have become the main ally of Britain and the United States in the Far East, just like Franco's Spain. And Manchuria may even be recognized by Britain and the United States, just like South Korea now, entirely probably to become the power engine of East Asian economy. Japan's lack of prudence in diplomacy cost it its best opportunity and gave away the entire Asian continent to the Soviets. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative.